Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page, that's me, and the independent analyst Richard Kramer that laid out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, the good and bad of someone else's money. More in a moment. Back with part two of the fifth episode of Bubble Trouble. And we mentioned just before the break there, a book and a movie that's now 30 plus years old called Barbarians at the Gate. And I I posed to you, Richard, the question of why if this book was a warning sign or a smoke signal, as we like to discuss in this podcast, for so many of us 30 plus years ago, why are there so many more barbarians at the gate today? For every seller, there needs to be a buyer. And this is where incentives come in. And we talked extensively in the themes and dreams episode of the podcast about how you always want to dangle the amazing prospect of growth in front of someone when you're trying to convince them to participate in an investment. Now, for a large portion of the markets, they never intend to be owners. They're just renters. And that can go from the high-frequency trading funds that own a stock for a fraction of a second to the momentum traders who see a stock rising and they want to own it for a day. Or all the market-neutral funds, which are trying to pair off stocks in similar sectors and say, this one is going to do better than the next one for just this day or this week or this month. Nothing to do with funding a successful business, right? No. And indeed, a lot of the people who are trying to fund successful businesses in the venture capitalist world will say, we're going to back 40 or 100 businesses. We have no idea which one will become the next Facebook. We're just hoping one of them will. And frankly, we're planning for 50 or 60% of them to completely go bust. So we're planning to lose the majority of our money on a large portion of our bets. But we think out of these hundred diamonds, one will turn out to be a true diamond and not just cubic zirconium. (laughs) Okay, so let's turn some smoke signals here. And I want to do some arithmetic here and just recap on how I was taught that private equity worked. And it's a great example of putting debt into action, which is you have a house, which is a hundred, and you want to acquire that house for that 100. And the way that you acquire it is to take on 99 debt and one equity. And as long as the rental income of owning the house covers the cost of financing the debt, you can sell that house for 101 and double your money, correct? It's not quite that simple because, as you will know, as a good economist, there are loads of transaction costs. So why don't you factor in what the current stamp duty is for buying and selling a house in the UK? What is that, Will? 
Yeah, around about three, four percent of the transaction fee. No, it's uh, right now it's ten or twelve for non-DOMs. Okay, so I haven't bought a house in a long time. Right. So, uh, you know, there are also going to be all sorts of one-off upfront costs that the bank is going to take for managing that transaction for you, and you have to find the willing buyer. Agreed. But if you do sell a house for 101 or 102, you can effectively double your money. But is there a way in that simple arithmetic example that debt itself can become an asset? You talked about how you can rip out costs earlier. Can we run that example with a sort of carpet bagging model? Yeah. So what I think you'd see time and again in the markets is you buy the house, let's say 50-50 equity debt, and you say to 10 other potential house sellers, guess what? I own half of this wonderful property that's worth a million dollars. I'm going to borrow against that to buy your property. And maybe I borrow against that single asset multiple times. Maybe I borrow against that single asset once and then turn the new asset that I just bought into another form of equity that I can borrow against. And that's how you build Ponzi schemes or build mountains of debt. And that's why when an empire of any real estate tycoon starts to unravel, or as we're seeing right now in the UK with Greensill Capital and Gupta Enterprises, when you pull on that one thread that says, what's the underlying value of the asset? You realize that there was a mountain of debt built on top of it, all pledged from a small core of assets. And that leads to contagion, right? That's when you have the domino theory of Greensill goes, who's next to go? And then things can tumble down very, very quickly. All right, let's to move to our, our three kind of hand-holding moments for our, our listeners here, our smoke signals and our undercurrents that we always like to deal with in the second half of the show. It sounds to me like the first smoke signal, taking a leaf out of the book of barbarians at the gate, is just to be wary of loading companies up with debt for a short-term gain. Look, for me, the first big smoke signal is the combination of leverage or debt with uncertain cash flows. Hey, if you're an electric utility, you roughly know how many customers you have in a given area and how much their likely electrical use is or water use or gas use or what have you. But a lot of companies are loaded up with debt, but have not very certain cash flows or their cash flows depend on some speculative event in the future. And the risky thing is that just like equity investors are prone to bubbles, debt investors are always looking for higher and higher yields. And they're looking for riskier and riskier investments because you can command a higher premium to invest in risky assets. And the nature of debt should mean that you'll be able to pay back regularly, but you get paid more if that regular payment is not so certain. Our second smoke signal, um, I know we want to go into this in a future episode, but I got to throw this weird acronym at you, SPACs. Richard, when we see the hype around SPACs just now, it just feels like the script for bubble troubles being written in the Financial Times at the moment. Give me the high level overview of why SPACs matter in the context of a podcast called Someone Else's Money. Take it away. Well, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies, and typically they would have been formed up when an investor or a group of investors was looking to acquire an asset. Now, in this speculative world where there's way too much money sloshing around and 
as we know from the interest rates from governments, money is effectively free. Well, lots of people have decided, why don't I raise a fund? And the best definition I've heard of SPACs is give me money for an idea I haven't had yet. Or as I like to call it, a premature baby without a business plan. Yes. And I might have that idea. And guess what? Based on my track record as an entertainer, as a business person, or as a financier, if you give me your money, I hope to make some for me and maybe also for you. So we have that cue that we talked about, about who reaps the rewards of debt. You know, where are you in the packing order of getting your money back? Absolutely. And this, the second point about SPACs is typically you don't give someone your money and say, yeah, go ahead and invest it at some point in the future. SPACs typically have two years to do this. The clock is ticking. And that's a really bad incentive. When you really have to spend your money quickly, you tend to make bad decisions, especially when there's a limited number of targets out there to spend your money on and you know you have to do it in a limited period of time. Especially if you find yourself in that limited period of time having to acquire growth. I mean, if you had to buy another company to grow, who in earth would sell to a spec? Just name your price. The, the seller is the price maker, not the price taker in this situation. So it's going to be very hard to acquire growth if you can't produce it organically within, like you say, a very short time period. Yeah. And what makes this even more toxic at the moment is this Hunger Games scenario where you have thousands of SPACs all desperate to make acquisitions. And that means the seller is running your favorite example from a previous episode, the Keynesian Beauty Parade. The seller is able to bring in the SPACs and say, so which one of you is going to pay me the highest possible price, even if I know you're going to turn around and dilute your investors by 50% to do it? So we've got a bit of a toxic combination here, correct? Yeah. And the interesting thing is that it really perfectly fits the investment bank business model, which is the cost of doing a deal is the same, whether they do a deal for $100 million bucks or $10 billion. It's a deal. The deal generates the value. The deal generates the value. And if you're taking a percentage of the value of the deal, your incentive is to make the deal as big as possible. The bigger the amount of money you raise, the bigger the paycheck is for the bank. And once they've gotten in the treadmill of raising these SPACs, they become uh, a factory. And that's why you have literally thousands of these special purpose acquisition companies, which have been formed up in the last six months or so. I imagine a pack of rabid, extremely hungry wild dogs let loose on a limited amount supply of dog food or meat. You talk about a rabid wild set of dogs there. That sets up an image in my head, not of rabid wild dogs, but of Harry Redknapp, a soccer manager who had a, a model of the transfer market where he got paid every time one of his players was transferred. So anybody who played for this manager was moving around clubs every year, not to make clubs become successful, but to generate transaction fees. And I'm sure no football agent right now is really that worried about how the clubs are doing. What they're really worried about is is there enough deal flow happening? Whether those deals do any good or not is irrelevant. They make money on the deal, correct? Absolutely. And that cuts right to the heart of something we talked about in previous episodes and even this episode, which is incentives. And the fact of tax deductibility of interest in the US tax code is really an original sin. It encourages leverage. It encourages borrowing. It encourages investment. And that's a good thing. 
but it also encourages larger, more speculative investment when you're always looking for outsized returns relative to the next guy. Okay, so we've got our two smoke signals, settling companies up with debt for short-term gain, very little to do with making companies successful, lots to do with extracting value from the debt. And our second smoke signal being that business of the values and getting deals done, not whether those deals are doing any good or not, making money out of the transaction of debt as opposed to making debt produce economic activity. What's the undercurrent here? The one thing that regardless of how clever we get at spotting bubbles and avoiding their troubles, what's the undercurrent that we're never going to get get away from? I mean, it sounds to me like the way the game is rigged is that debt is incentivized, correct? Well, and I'll tell you another angle on this, and it goes back to your favorite phrase about moral hazard. If you're the chief executive of a company and you know the average tenure of a FTSE chief executive is three years, four years, if you load the company up with a ton of debt that comes due in five to 10 years, hey, it's not my problem. If Harry Redknapp gets brought in to fix a struggling club in the relegation zone, buys a bunch of players, and when they don't get relegated, sells them all the year after, the club doesn't complain and Harry Redknapp is made out like a bandit. But it's simply the question of who is left holding the bag with all that debt? Who's funding the short-term profits? And will they really be covered in the end? Or is this something that's a parcel that's going to be passed on to the next guy who comes in the door and takes a look at the real state of the balance sheet? So there you have it. Someone else's money, certainly not yours. And at some point, you're going to have to pay that back. Next week, we're going to go straight into real events, stuff that's hitting the headlines right now. And I think the first one has to be the issue of specs. We'll be dissecting that rather weird acronym into all of its details. I want to thank my colleague Richard Kramer. And remember, this week's bubble is next week's trouble. I'm Will Page. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we'd encourage you to follow the podcast wherever you listen. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom and Jesse Baker at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. See you next time. back with part two of the fifth episode of Bubble Trouble. And we mentioned just before the break there, a book and a movie that's now 30 plus years old called Barbarians at the Gate. And I, I posed to you, Richard, the question of why if this book was a warning sign or a smoke signal, as we like to discuss in this podcast, for so many of us 30 plus years ago, why are there so many more barbarians at the gate today? For every seller, there needs to be a buyer. And this is where incentives come in. And we talked extensively in the themes and dreams episode of the podcast about how you always want to dangle the amazing prospect of growth in front of someone when you're trying to convince them to participate in an investment. Now, for a large portion of the markets, they never intend to be owners. They're just renters. And that can go from the high frequency trading funds that own a stock for a fraction of a second to the momentum traders who see a stock rising and they want to own it for a day or all the market neutral funds, which are trying to pair off stocks in similar sectors and say, this one is going to do better than the next one 
for just this day or this week or this month? Nothing to do with funding a successful business, right? No. And indeed, a lot of the people who are trying to fund successful businesses in the venture capitalist world will say, we're going to back 40 or 100 businesses. We have no idea which one will become the next Facebook. We're just hoping one of them will. And frankly, we're planning for 50 or 60% of them to completely go bust. So we're planning to lose the majority of our money on a large portion of our bets. But we think out of these 100 diamonds, one will turn out to be a true diamond and not just cubic zirconium. <laughs> okay, so let's turn some smoke signals here. And I want to do some arithmetic here and just recap on how I was taught that private equity worked. And there's a great example of putting debt into action, which is you have a house which is 100, and you want to acquire that house for that 100. And the way that you acquire it is to take on 99 debt and one equity. And as long as the rental income of owning the house covers the cost of financing the debt, you can sell that house for 101 and double your money, correct? It's not quite that simple because, as you will know, as a good economist, there are loads of transaction costs. So why don't you factor in what the current stamp duty is for buying and selling a house in the UK? What is that, Will? Yeah, around about 3 4% of the transaction fee. No, it's uh, right now it's 10 or 12 for non-DOMs. Okay, so I haven't bought a house in a long time. Right. So, uh, you know, there are also going to be all sorts of one-off upfront costs that the bank is going to take for managing that transaction for you. And you have to find the willing buyer. Agreed. But if you do sell a house for 101 or 102, you can effectively double your money. But is there a way in that simple arithmetic example that debt itself can become an asset? You talked about how you can rip out costs earlier. Can we run that example with the sort of carpet bagging model? Yeah. So what I think you'd see time and again in the markets is you buy the house, let's say 50-50 equity debt, and you say to 10 other potential house sellers, guess what? I own half of this wonderful property that's worth a million dollars. I'm going to borrow against that to buy your property. And maybe I borrow against that single asset multiple times. Maybe I borrow against that single asset once and then turn the new asset that I just bought into another form of equity that I can borrow against. And that's how you build Ponzi schemes or build mountains of debt. And that's why when an empire of any real estate tycoon starts to unravel, or as we're seeing right now in the UK with Greensill Capital and Gupta Enterprises, when you pull on that one thread that says, what's the underlying value of the asset? You realize that there was a mountain of debt built on top of it, all pledged from a small core of assets. And that leads to contagion, right? That's when you have the domino theory of Greensill goes, who's next to go? And then things can tumble down very, very quickly. All right, let's to move to our, our, our three kind of hand-holding moments for our, our listeners here, our smoke signals and our undercurrents that we always like to deal with in the second half of the show. It sounds to me like the first smoke signal, taking a leaf out of the book of barbarians at the gate, is just to be wary of loading companies up with debt for a short-term gain. Yeah, look, for me, the first big smoke signal is the combination of leverage or debt with uncertain cash flows. Hey, if you're an electric utility, you roughly know how many customers you have in a given area. 
and how much their likely electrical use is, or water use, or gas use, or what have you. But a lot of companies are loaded up with debt, but have not very certain cash flows, or their cash flows depend on some speculative event in the future. And the risky thing is that just like equity investors are prone to bubbles, debt investors are always looking for higher and higher yields, and they're looking for riskier and riskier investments because you can command a higher premium to invest in risky assets. And the nature of debt should mean that you'll be able to pay back regularly, but you get paid more if that regular payment is not so certain. Our second smoke signal. Um, I know we want to go into this in a future episode, but I got to throw this weird acronym at you, SPACs. Richard, when we see the hype around SPACs just now, it just feels like the script for bubble trouble is being written in the Financial Times at the moment. Give me the high-level overview of why SPACs matter in the context of a podcast called Someone Else's Money. Take it away. Well, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies, and typically they would have been formed up when an investor or a group of investors was looking to acquire an asset. Now, in this speculative world where there's way too much money sloshing around, and as we know from the interest rates from governments, money is effectively free, well, lots of people have decided, why don't I raise a fund? And the best definition I've heard of SPACs is, give me money for an idea I haven't had yet. Or as I like to call it, a premature baby without a business plan. Yes. And I might have that idea. And guess what? Based on my track record as an entertainer, as a business person, or as a financier, if you give me your money, I hope to make some for me and maybe also for you. So we have that cue that we talked about, about who reaps the rewards of debt. You know, where are you in the packing order of getting your money back? Absolutely. And this, the second point about SPACs is typically you don't give someone your money and say, yeah, go ahead and invest it at some point in the future. SPACs typically have two years to do this. The clock is ticking. And that's a really bad incentive. When you really have to spend your money quickly, you tend to make bad decisions, especially when there's a limited number of targets out there to spend your money on and you know you have to do it in a limited period of time especially if you find yourself in that limited period of time having to acquire growth. I mean, if you had to buy another company to grow, who in earth would sell to a spec? Just name your price. The, the seller is a price maker, not the price taker in this situation. So it's going to be very hard to acquire growth if you can't produce it organically within, like you say, a very short time period. Yeah. And what makes this even more toxic at the moment is this Hunger game scenario where you have thousands of SPACs all desperate to make acquisitions. And that means the seller is running your favorite example from a previous episode, the Keynesian beauty parade. The seller is able to bring in the SPACs and say, so which one of you is going to pay me the highest possible price, even if I know you're going to turn around and dilute your investors by 50% to do it? So we've got a bit of a toxic combination here, correct? Yeah. And the interesting thing is that it really perfectly fits the investment bank business model, which is the cost of doing a deal is the same, whether they do a deal for $100 million bucks or $10 billion. It's a deal. The deal generates the value. The deal generates the value. And if you're taking a percentage of the value of the deal, your incentive is to make the deal as big as possible. 
the bigger the amount of money you raise, the bigger the paycheck is for the bank. And once they've gotten in the treadmill of raising these SPACs, they become uh, a factory. And that's why you have literally thousands of these special purpose acquisition companies, which have been formed up in the last six months or so. Imagine a pack of rabid, extremely hungry wild dogs let loose on a limited supply of dog food or meat. You talk about a rabid wild set of dogs there. That sets up an image in my head, not of rabid wild dogs, but of Harry Redknapp, our soccer manager, who had a a model of the transfer market where he got paid every time one of his players was transferred. So anybody who played for this manager was moving around clubs every year, not to make clubs become successful, but to generate transaction fees. And I'm sure no football agent right now is really that worried about how the clubs are doing. What they're really worried about is, is there enough deal flow happening? Whether those deals do any good or not is irrelevant. They make money on the deal, correct? Absolutely. And that cuts right to the heart of something we talked about in previous episodes and even this episode, which is incentives. And the fact of tax deductibility of interest in the US tax code is really an original sin. It encourages leverage. It encourages borrowing. It encourages investment, and that's a good thing, but it also encourages larger, more speculative investment when you're always looking for outsized returns relative to the next guy. Okay, so we've got our two smoke signals, saddling companies up with debt for short-term gain, very little to do with making companies successful, lots to do with extracting value from the debt. And our second smoke signal being that business of the value is in getting deals done, not whether those deals are doing any good or not. Making money out of the transaction of debt as opposed to making debt produce economic activity. What's the undercurrent here? The one thing that regardless of how clever we get at spotting bubbles and avoiding their troubles, what's the undercurrent that we're never going to get get away from? I mean, it sounds to me like the way the game is rigged is that debt is incentivized, correct? Well, and I'll tell you another angle on this, and it goes back to your favorite phrase about moral hazard. If you're the chief executive of a company and you know the average tenure of a FTSE chief executive is three years, four years, if you load the company up with a ton of debt that comes due in five to 10 years, hey, it's not my problem. If Harry Redknapp gets brought in to fix a struggling club in the relegation zone, buys a bunch of players, and when they don't get relegated, sells them all the year after, the club doesn't complain, and Harry Redknapp is made out like a bandit. But it's simply the question of who is left holding the bag with all that debt? Who's funding the short-term profits? And will they really be covered in the end? Or is this something that's a parcel that's going to be passed on to the next guy who comes in the door and takes a look at the real state of the balance sheet? So there you have it. Someone else's money, certainly not yours. And at some point, you're going to have to pay that back. Next week, we're going to go straight into real events, stuff that's hitting the headlines right now. And I think the first one has to be the issue of specs. We'll be dissecting that rather weird acronym into all of its details. I want to thank my colleague Richard Kramer. And remember, this week's bubble is next week's trouble. I'm Will Page. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we'd encourage you to follow the podcast wherever you listen. 
Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom and Jesse Baker at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.